Well, if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to open it to Galatians chapter 3. Pray with me if you would. Father in heaven, these words were inspired uh, uh, by your spirit and uh, written uh, by your servant Paul. And Lord, we can't understand them, appreciate uh, their significance for our lives without the ministry of your spirit today. So we ask that you'd uh, free our hearts and minds from concerns about the week past and the week ahead. And that your spirit might speak to us deeply, personally, that he might minister uh, to us. Uh, May he encourage and strengthen us. May he awaken faith in us, for we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. Does he who supplies the spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abram. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Well, last week we saw that the way that we make progress in the Christian life is exactly the same way we start in Christ. Uh, We begin the Christian life by uh, hearing the message of what Christ has done so that we might have life. The life found in Christ is the life that we need. In fact, whether we realize it or not, it is the life we actually desire. Everyone wants a life of freedom, joy, peace, uh, contentment, and purpose. And the gospel tells us that these desires can only be met when we know Christ and receive a new life from him. When we get a glimpse of this, we see we cannot uh, create the life we deeply want. And so we turn from relying on ourselves and on trusting Christ. This is living by faith, relying on what he has done. But Christians can and actually do turn away from relying on Christ alone and living by faith alone. Just what do they turn to? Well, they turn to themselves, of course. 
They seek to live by obeying the law or some other biblical uh, principle, which is a rule, and they rely on themselves to carry it out. It's not that those who rely on Christ alone and faith alone don't obey God, but they do so with different motives since they are deeply loved with a love that can't be lost and they obey out of gratitude not to secure or to maintain a relationship with God. And those who live by relying on Christ alone and faith alone find the power to obey comes from Christ through the Holy Spirit as they continue to put their faith in the gospel and not from their own resources. It's not from their own willpower, personal resolve, or discipline, which, of course, some people have naturally more than other people do. And as we'll see, they approach obedience, including the Ten Commandments, differently because they clearly see that God's intent, what God's intent was in giving the law and its limitations. And we'll look at that today, and we'll look at it next week as well. Now, if you're new here or you haven't uh, uh, heard this kind of teaching before, it may be a lot to take in. And uh, that's why uh, we record sermons. So you can go and you can uh, uh, get caught up if you'd like. So there are two kinds of people and two ways of living. In one, you are seeking righteousness by what you do. And in the other, you receive righteousness as a gift, knowing you cannot achieve it. In fact, this is what Paul says in Romans chapter uh, 9. Let me just read uh, a couple of verses from the end of the chapter. He writes, What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works, and they have stumbled over the stumbling stone, which, as he cites the Old Testament, is Christ himself. Now, there is a practical righteousness, or you might call it a public uh, morality, uh, that we often seek. In fact, all of us seek it one way or another. Take Sunday school attendance. About 50 years ago or so, it was not uncommon in churches uh, to award a pen for perfect attendance. Might be for one year, it might be for five years, 10 years, and you could wear that pen on your clothing. And uh, it was a form of righteousness, and it gave you bragging rights. And you wore the pen expecting people to notice it and to applaud you uh, for uh, your consistency. There's driving righteousness. You have it if you have never exceeded the speed limit. You come to a full stop at the stop sign. You have no traffic tickets, none at all ever. Uh, You have the kind of righteousness, this kind of driving righteousness makes you feel superior to people who speed. And under your breath, you scold them, or out loud with your mouth, you condemn them. And and maybe it leads you to think that God has to protect you on the road. After all, I have driving righteousness. There's eating righteousness. 
You know, I eat uh, five servings of vegetables every day. Um, I, I don't eat red meat or sugar or bread or, or whatever at the moment constitutes eating righteousness. Uh, there's financial righteousness. I'm frugal. Uh, I live below my means. I don't have any debt, and I'm a serious and disciplined savior. Saver. There's parenting righteousness. My children are well-behaved and responsible and respectful and whatever else you want to add to that list. Uh, there's work righteousness, and there's a version of this that applies in all school settings as well. You always show up a few minutes early. You stay a few minutes late. You don't take 10 extra minutes for lunch. You don't step out of line at work. Students do the same sort of thing. You know, they uh, come every day. They don't, you know, don't pretend to be sick <laughs> and fight uh, getting to school. They complete their assignments on time. They do that extra credit uh, work. Uh, they don't talk behind the teacher's back and so on. That's school uh, righteousness. And all of these kinds of righteousness bring certain rewards uh, with them. That's why they're uh, kind of a, a public uh, morality. And there are just many, many forms of this, most of which can actually be stated as an application of biblical uh, principles. You'll have to work that out later. But we can actually rely on these for our sense of self-worth, our identity, and our standing with others. Having these forms of practical righteousness makes you better than other people who don't have them. And so we boast inwardly, and it's likely that we convey this in our attitudes as we relate to other people. And once in a while, it just slips right out of our mouths. Have you ever rehearsed to yourself these kinds of righteousness to make you feel better about yourself? Well, I have. <laughs> Now, building and maintaining practical righteousness are projects you have to work at. Keeping a rule, a law principle, takes effort. It's a form of work. And you need to see these things in order to really connect what the, what the message of the gospel is to your life. Otherwise, it's just in some box called theology, <laughs> Some, what I confess. And it doesn't have the traction in our lives it's, it's supposed to. So this relying on law works uh, is what you do, just as you might rely on the Ten Commandments. In daily living, you can profess uh, Christ as the source of your life, uh, your self-worth, your identity, etc., but what you are in your living doing is you are relying on yourself for motivation, for discipline and power uh, to be righteous in all these practical ways. And we're pulled toward this because we internalize the gospel as I come to Christ, I'm forgiven, the slate is white uh, clean, and now the pressure's on, you're on probation. You need to prove uh, to God, yourself, uh, to others, that in fact you are responding to this gift. So this is what's at stake if you rely on your record of practical righteousness in addition uh, to faith in Christ. 
And it is this, having the blessing of Abraham. Now this blessing, which is mentioned in verses 8 and 9, is really the answer to everything and all our longings. It's the story of Scripture itself. Uh, Adam and Eve uh, were created along with everything else by God. It was all good, and he pronounced a blessing uh, on it. But then our first parents rebelled, and their sin brought the curse. And everything was disordered, blighted, diseased, spoiled, and ultimately would be subject to corruption and death. In Abraham, God uh, promised to undo the curse and uh, bless. And so we gain the world itself as God intended it to be. Now, as Paul moves from verses 5 to 6, just look at them with me. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? It might seem at first, and especially if you connect this with what's just before it, that when Paul mentions Abraham, it's kind of abrupt. Like, this doesn't belong here at all. But actually what he's doing is he's turning the tables on the false teachers uh, and showing the Galatians that Abraham actually agrees with Paul and Paul's law-free gospel. See, the, the false teachers in Gal- that came to Galatia said, it's wonderful that you put your faith in Christ, uh, but if you want to stay close to God, you have to live as we Jews do. Now, Abraham is the father of the Jews. And Paul is saying this. We could paraphrase what he's saying uh, this way. Think about Abraham. Look at what the Bible says. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was a man of faith. Uh, He is the example of what it means to have faith. Abraham's life teaches what I am teaching. In verse 6, Paul's quoting Genesis uh, 15, verse 6. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The word counted is very important. It's an accounting term. And it means that money was received and counted as a payment for some good or services. And that's pretty much what we mean by it today. Uh, Your translation may use the word credited. It means the same thing as counted here. It means to confer a status on something that was not there before. Think of it this way. Suppose you go to Aaron's. Uh, and you uh, to lease or possibly buy a, a, a TV or a living room furniture. And what errands will do is they will rent it to you with the understanding that that payment uh, can be turned uh, toward the purchase of that TV or living room uh, furniture. Sometimes people uh, buy houses this way. And the moment you do that, you say, I want to buy this, that rental payment becomes payment, an installation payment on that 
This is how most of us buy our phones. Most of us do not pay the full price up front, and we have it rolled right into our monthly uh, bill. And you're buying that phone on an installment basis. And what's being said here is that Abraham's faith is counted as righteousness. This means that God is treating Abraham's faith as if he were living a righteous life. Now, this has really bothered a lot of people. They say, how can faith be counted as a record for righteous living? They're not the same thing. And so what some people say is Abraham's faith itself is a kind of righteousness that pleases God. In other words, his faith was an act of obedience that wins God's favor and approval. But that isn't what the scripture says. It's not his faith was righteousness. No, rather it reads, it was counted as if it were righteousness. God credits Abraham's faith as righteousness. He writes into Abraham's record what doesn't belong to him, what he didn't actually do. God, in other words, is conferring a legal status on him. He treats him as if he actually were righteous and without fault and free of condemnation, even though he hasn't actually met all of God's requirements in his thoughts or his words or his behaviors. Just guess Sarah how she felt uh, when she was told uh, to lie about her relationship with Abraham and got carried into somebody's harem. Just how righteous was that? Now, this contradicts what traditional religion says, which is that either we're living righteously and are pleasing and acceptable to God, or we're living unrighteously and God is distant and angry with us. Paul and Abraham are saying what Luther was saying when he said we are simultaneously righteous and sinful. That's what Paul means in Romans 4-5 when he writes, God justifies the wicked. The gospel, unlike traditional religion, says we can be declared righteous before God by faith, not because we've cleaned up our lives morally or spiritually. You don't start a self-improvement project, moral or spiritual, in order to uh, earn credited righteousness. No, it is a gift you receive while still a sinner. And Paul adds in verse 7, know that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. In other words, what matters is not that you are physically, lineally descended from Abraham. No, it's your spiritual lineage having the same kind of faith that Abraham has. Verse 9, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So that raises the question, well, just what is faith? The kind of faith that Abraham has is saving faith. He is believing the gospel promise and not simply generic faith. Abraham believes God, not believed in God. There are many, many people who believe in the existence of God, but do not believe in the promise of God. They don't trust what he has said. Abraham believed the message God gave him, the promise that he and Sarah would have a child, and that through this child the nations would be blessed. 
the child that they received was Isaac, but he's not the one through whom the blessing came directly. That would be Isaac's greater son, the Lord Jesus. James says even the demons believe in God, but that's not saving faith. Abraham believed and trusted what God actually said, his promise to turn back to curse and bring blessing, the blessing of salvation. So let me pause. Have you done this? You boys and girls, you students, all of you adults. You see, coming to church, being baptized, being a member of the church, those things are not the same thing as saving faith. Saving faith may result in your doing all of those things, but that's not saving faith. Saving faith is trusting that God himself has promised to you in the gospel. Blessing. Saving faith rests on God's provision and not our performance. In Genesis 15, the passage that Paul's quoting, Abraham is 85 and Sarah is 75. They were childless. She was barren and infertile, and no doubt for decades they tried to have children, and there was great heartache. They simply couldn't have children together, and yet God promised they would have children as numerous as the stars in the night sky and the sand on the beach. And God fulfills this promise uh, by acting apart from human ability opening Sarah's womb at age 90 and giving them a child. This is the promise Abraham believed, and it depended entirely on God's actions, God's work, and not Abraham's. Abraham lived by faith, but there's another way to live, and it's by observing the law, by relying on our observance of the law for our standing before uh, God. Look at verses uh, 10 to 12. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who doesn't abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. To live by something means you rely on it for your happiness, your fulfillment. It's the thing that gives you meaning and confidence and value. And it's one of the most important things to discern in your life. What do I actually live by? What is my life based on? What if I lost it would make me feel as if life weren't living? I especially think that last question is a piercing, penetrating one. What if you lost it? Would make you think life isn't worth living? Would actually cause you to functionally stop uh, living, caring about life? Well, Paul contrasts living by faith like Abraham to gain blessing to living by the law, which means we're under a curse. Now, being under a curse has two dimensions to it. One of them is theological. If you say, I can be saved by obeying the law, you must both understand and live out everything that the law requires. 
you must satisfy every demand it makes. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount uh, reveals the inward demands of the law. So it's not enough not to murder somebody. That's not the full demand of the law. It is that you must not hate another person and be so angry with them that you wish they were dead. Uh, It's not enough uh, to avoid the act of adultery. You must not want such affections upon the attractiveness, desiring an emotional connection, the intention or physical intimacy with someone. You're not even to engage in that in your thought life. It's not that you simply must not name other gods, but you can't have any good thing actually functionally more important to you than the true God. You must love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and not be divided in your love and your loyalty. In other words, you have to be perfect. Now the whole of the Old Testament uh, could be described as having one huge sign that says dead end over the law. The whole Old Testament, largely, it's, it's uh, uh, at one level, you read it's kind of a dark, sad book because it's just one failure after another. And it is a testament that apart from the grace of God, that the law will only stir up sin in you and will ultimately choke you to death. Uh, uh, Charles Spurgeon was a famous 19th century uh, preacher, and uh, he writes about his own realization about the law. He said, the law seemed to blight my hopes with its stern sentence. Cursed is everyone uh, that doesn't continue in all the things that are written in the book of the law to do them. He says, I know very well that I hadn't continued in all those things. I hadn't done everything that was required. And sure, I could say I'd never blasphemed God, but it didn't matter because I sinned in some other way. You see, no matter which links in the chain of the law, I could say I hadn't broken. If I broke one, I'd broken the chain. And so he writes, he says, Ah, me, how I seem shut up then. I had offended against the justice of God. I was impure and polluted. And I used to say, if God doesn't send me to hell, he ought to. And I sat in judgment on myself. And so the law troubled and worried me at all points. It shut me up in an iron cage, and every way of uh, escaping was effectually blocked. You see, many people have not experienced that. They don't have a sense of their utter inability to keep God's standards. Instead, uh, they think, well, I uh, have been engaged in a process of changing my behavior and becoming more moral. Or perhaps they identify with the right Christian causes or even church membership, but they haven't come to the place of brokenness where they sense their need of grace and mercy. It's only in coming to Christ that you can receive grace and mercy. Attempting through obedience to the law to gain God's blessing, his acceptance and love results in a curse. And psychologically, this curse is experienced subjectively in this way. 
If you're seeking to save yourself, uh, to gain or maintain God's acceptance and approval or love for performance, you will be cursed in this way. At the very least, it creates pressure on you. You have to perform. Uh, you can't have a slip up. Uh, you will end up being anxious and insecure because you can never be sure that in your living you've actually lived up to your standard. And this is true of the Ten Commandments. also true of all these applications of biblical principles that uh, I've described as practical righteousness. You can never be sure you've kept these up. And you can look at Romans uh, 2. Paul says the same thing with utter clarity uh, there. And it will leave you sensitive to criticism and envious and intimidated by those who outshine you. See, if you don't know where you'll st stand with God, then you'll either be boastful and proud because you're trying to convince yourself that you're in good standing uh, with him, or you'll feel crushed. And either way, you feel condemned. So how can we escape the curse and enjoy the blessings promised to Abraham? Well, that's why we need the cross. In verse 13, Paul tells us Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Jesus brings us into blessing by becoming a curse for us. And Paul cites a passage from Deuteronomy which says, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Now often this is uh, misunderstood. In the Old Testament, when someone committed a capital crime, most of the time they were stoned to death. And after they were dead, they were hung up on a tree as a warning to people of what happens to people who disobey God in this way. Actually, throughout human history, these kinds of warnings uh, have uh, been done around uh, human laws. Now, what Paul says is remarkable here, because he doesn't say that Jesus was cursed, but that Jesus became a curse for us. That's very strong. He doesn't say that he was just cursed. No, it says he became a curse. In other words, uh, this is something like what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, where it says, not that Jesus was punished for our sins, but that God made him to be sin. This is the same thing as that. And it teaches us three things. First is that Jesus was punished in our place. But even more, it teaches us that Jesus was rejected by God. He lost his relationship with God. Now, the level of pain uh, in the loss of a relationship depends completely on the level of that relationship. To be cursed is to be rejected, is to be cut off. And it hurts to be rejected. Now, if an acquaintance says, I hate you, it doesn't hurt as badly when a friend says, I hate you. And that doesn't hurt as badly as when your best friend says, I hate you. And that doesn't hurt as badly as when your parents say, I hate you. And that doesn't hurt as bad as when your spouse says, I hate you. And when we think about the relationship between God the Father and God the Son, it's just beyond our ability to recognize how intimate and the depth of that relationship. Now, people 
are devastated by the loss of relationship. You know people who have never gotten over being rejected. It's worse than being branded. It's far worse. It ruins your life. And this helps you see what's going on in the cross. It's why Jesus sweats blood in the garden before he's betrayed. Jesus, throughout his whole life, had a perfect relationship with the Father. He had an amazing prayer life. Uh, But he sat in the moment of his greatest need, and he turned to God, and hell opened up. You see, he turns to the Father, and where the Father had been, there's nothing. The Father rejected him. He cursed him. He suffered for us means in his heart, he experienced what we would have experienced in hell forever and ever, having lost God. And Jesus on the cross felt this was going to go on forever. It's the only time in his life where he doesn't call God Father. He constantly calls God Father Our Father, Holy Father, your Father, my Father, only once it's on the cross where he cries out, God, my God, not my Father. And the third thing this teaches us is that he wasn't just punished for us, but he became sin. Did Jesus actually become selfish and angry and rebellious? Did he become wicked and evil on the cross? Well, of course not. Then why does Paul say he became a curse? Well, the answer is, is that he legally became that. Jesus was treated as if he were a blasphemer, a murderer, and a thief. He was treated as if he was all these terrible things. And why is that so important? Well, because it shows us the amazing thing that happens when we put our faith in Christ. If Jesus became sin for us, then we have become righteous in exactly the same way. If he's taking the curse means that he was rejected by God as a sinner, then our receiving the blessing means that we are regarded by God as if we were perfectly righteous and flawless. Salvation's more than forgiveness. We don't just get the slate wiped clean. We become perfect in God's sight. We don't begin by trusting in Christ and the curse becoming and bless giving death for us. Then we continue by human effort as though we must now earn ongoing blessing. That's foolish. We go on as we begin, having our hearts melted and molded by knowing and trusting Christ crucified. And we never move from this gospel. We never can. And we never need to. We can be utterly and absolutely confident as we face life, especially life's disappointments and suffering, that we are right with God and we can abandon all our own efforts to establish our standing with others, ourselves. Because we have that standing with God himself. Have you believed this gospel? 
Have you personally entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ by expressing your faith in what he's promised? If the Spirit is touching you, showing you that's where you are today, I want to ask you to turn to Christ and receive him. This table is for those who have done that. But here, you, you, you should not come to that table if you've yet to do that. But while we're at this table, do that. Turn to Christ. Respond to what's being offered to you. Free yourself of the burden of trying to prove yourself to others or to God. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, draw each of us to yourself this moment. Be pleased no matter where we are in our spiritual journey to awaken within us faith that we might see Christ on the cross, him crucified and cursed uh, for us, that we might receive the blessing of Abraham. Father, uh, free us from all the self-deception within us that we can somehow clean up our lives and maintain a relationship with you. For we ask in Christ's name, amen. Amen.